we have got a long way to go today. You guys ready to go to work? We have got to back up a little bit and take a running start into our uh, stories for the week. So last week we did uh, Genesis 12, 13, 14, and we started to try to tackle 15. We didn't really get to it. So I want to pick up the story there, and we're going to do 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 today. No big deal, five chapters. Uh, What we've been talking about was God calls Abram. Abram gets pulled out, uh, goes to the land, and Lot comes with him, and Lot and Abram's flocks are too big, and so they separate. Lot gets kidnapped. Abram takes 318 of his fighting men and goes off to chase and, and rescues Lot, takes a bunch of stuff. As he's on his way back, he stops and gives a tithe to the Lord through the priest Melchizedek. Because of this, by the way, 318 fighting men, like his, his bait off, his little group of people that he's responsible for could be in the six to 700 people range. Like, that's a traveling city that he's responsible for. And God comes to him and says, Abram, I am going to be your reward. I'm going to be your safety, your security. And Abram looks at him and goes, and I'm paraphrasing, this is the beginning of chapter 15, kind of grabs God by the collar, so to speak, and says, God, that's real nice, but I don't have an heir. Like, it's real nice you'd be nice to me, but I'm an old man already. So, what? Like, if you really cared about me, you would give me an heir. Now, why is that so important? It's important because if Abram doesn't have an heir, all of his wealth falls to a guy who's been his servant. Then when Abram dies, the Bedov dissolves. And all of these people who are under his care now don't have anybody to protect them. And that's not okay. That's not okay. Having an heir is critical. And the great thing about Abram is he takes a wife knowing that she's barren and then doesn't get another wife until after she's dead. Like it's, it's incredible that him knowing what he knew at the time, like we look at the story from the back end and go, oh, well, God worked it all out. Right, but he didn't know that. It's incredible that this guy took a wife and then didn't take another wife. Even in a, in a world where... Um, Everything was normal in that time period. It was completely natural to have multiple wives. He never did it. He fought for her till the day that she died. Which for you young single men, that's a man you want to model yourself after. (laughs) Can I get a witness witness for my sisters? Oh, this is going to be a fun service. I mean, it's a cool thing. Now, God then says, Abram, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get me a bull and a goat and a sheep and a dove and a pigeon. He doesn't tell Abram what to do with it. He says, I want you to get them and bring them to me. Abram knows exactly what to do with it. So I want to show you a picture of what he does. 
This is what Abram does with them. He cuts them in half, except for the birds, he just kills them, and creates a blood path. Now, if you've been with our church for a while, then this should start to be vaguely familiar to you what's about to happen. What we're about to see here is that God and Abram are going to enter a covenant. Specifically, they're going to enter what's called a suzerain vassal covenant. A suzerain vassal covenant is a, it's the most common of the covenants, but it's not the only kind of covenant. There's lots of different kinds of covenants. This is one type. A suzerain vassal covenant is entered specifically when there is a greater party and a lesser party. The greater party is called the suzerain. The lesser party is called the vassal. This happens a lot like when um, kings of nations conquer other kings of nations. And the conquering king becomes the suzerain, and the conquered king becomes the vassal. And they enter into a covenant. Now, the reason why this gets interesting is because in the terms to the covenant, we, so we each have terms to the covenant. So me, conquered king, I'm not going to kill you. Or I'm a conquering king, I'm not going to kill you. Conquered king, I'm going to pay you taxes. Like, whatever our deal is... We have these terms. As we state our terms, we walk through the blood path. Get the blood all over our feet. It's a very graphic thing, but it's a picture that says, if I violate the covenant, this will happen to me. Here's the trick. The suzerain, the powerful one, is under no obligation to remember the covenant. It is the vassal's job to remember the covenant, to keep it, to honor it. Okay, that's gonna matter. Also, interestingly enough, this is the same covenant that is entered into when a groom gets ready to take on his bride. It's a covenant between the groom and the bride's father. Who is this suzerain? He's the more powerful one. I wonder what would be different if guys in our culture would make deals with their spouse's dad. <laughs> that would change the game a stitch. Right? There wouldn't be any him trying to coerce her into doing stuff she doesn't want to do. Because if he dishonors the covenant, her father gets to bring the axe to the root of the tree, so to speak. He's the one that gets to exact judgment on that, right? So it's a deal between the groom, who's the vassal, the father of the bride, who's the suzerain. Same kind of covenant. Now, they don't usually cut five animals. They usually will just cut one, but they'll walk through the blood, state their terms. This is a suzerain vassal covenant. Does that make sense? So God makes a covenant with Abram. Now, what's interesting in this covenant, the covenant is God says, Abram, you're going to have a son. And Abram's an old man at this time, 76, 77 years old. Now, <laughs> he's an old man. Just be comfortable with it. It's not wrong, it's just true. What, what's interesting in a suzerain vassal covenant is that the vassal always walks through the blood first. 
Now, what we see in Genesis 15 is Abram cuts the animals up, lays them out, and then it says that he's sitting on a hill. And apparently he's there for quite a while because the birds of prey start to show up, the buzzards start to show up to eat the dead animals. So it's been a while. Like, how long has it been? I don't know. Hour, two hours, I don't know what it is. But he will not walk through the blood. And the question is, why? Why, is, why won't he walk through the blood? Well, try this on. He's about to make a covenant with the creator of the universe. How's he going to do it upholding it? He knows as soon as he steps into that blood, he's a dead man. So he sits and waits. Now, what happens is God causes Abram to fall into a deep sleep. And in the deep sleep, Abram has a dream, a vision. And in the vision, he sees a flaming torch and a smoking pot. Flames and smoke are always about the presence of God, always in the Old Testament. And again, there's going to be several points that I'm going to give you today that I don't have time to build the case for, so you just have to trust me. If you're like, that's not true, come talk to me after the service, we'll talk about it. Flame and smoke always represent the the presence of God. And what God does in the vision is the flaming torch goes through the blood path and then the smoking pot goes through the blood path. He says, Abram, I know you can't do it by yourself. I'll walk it for you too. Like maybe that feels a little gospel-y. Maybe that's why Paul says that God, knowing he was going to reconcile the Gentiles, preached the gospel to Abram beforehand. Boom, there it is. Now, he has this covenant. Chapter 16, what we're going to find out at the end of chapter 16 is Abram is 86 years old. So he was 77, now he's 86. How long has it been? It's been a while. God hasn't fulfilled his promise. Sarai does something that we look at and go, like what, what? Okay, understand, Sarai knows that if Abram doesn't have an heir, this Badov dissolves. And God's promise to Abram was that the blessing of the nations would come through his line, not necessarily through hers. And so for the good of the bait off, she steps back and says, take Hagar, my mistress, an Egyptian slave, as your wife. So Sarai trades positions with Hagar. Hagar becomes the wife. Sarai becomes the mistress. Read Genesis 16. It's there. Hagar becomes pregnant, and she begins to have disdain for Sarai. She picks on her. She mistreats her. So uh, Hagar, the slave, gets elevated to a position of power, and she immediately uses her authority to mistreat someone underneath of her. So Sarai goes to Abram and says, this has been a terrible thing for me. Like, my my world is coming down. And so what Abram says is, he says, look, you're still my wife. And she is still your slave. Somebody's phone's ringing. 
Welcome to the world of attention deficit. Um, sir. Oh! Hagar is mistreating Sarah. Sarah goes to Abram. Abram says, listen, the lines of authority are still right. So Sarah gets put back in a position of authority over Hagar. And her first act as the one back in authority after having experienced what it feels like to be picked on, she picks on her right back. She mistreats her. She takes treats her. So much so that Hagar leaves. Like it's almost as if Hagar was bad, but Sarah is like, not only will I pick on you, but I'm going to make you pay double, triple, quadruple maybe. I don't know. But it's so bad that Hagar leaves. And an angel of the Lord comes to her and says... You need to go back. And it's funny, if you read the text there, it says, and the angel of the Lord says, you need to return and submit to her authority. And Hagar says nothing. And then the angel of the Lord said, and I'm going to bless you, and you're going to have lots of sons. Nothing. And then she says, uh, the Lord has heard you. The angel of the Lord says, the Lord has heard you. And then she's like, okay, now I can go back because the Lord heard me. Like, that's what she was waiting for. Which, by the way, here's a lesson that I'm learning today. How valuable is it when you work towards just hearing your spouse rather than trying to fix them? My women are all like, yes. All right. Sorry, we're fixers. We love you. We just don't do it well sometimes. Um, So the end of chapter 16 is, and Abram was... 86 years old when Ishmael was born. Okay? So we have this story. God makes a covenant with Abram. You're going to have a son. Then we have this story where Hagar and Sarai are having this power struggle, and neither one of them is stewarding authority very well. And so chapter 17 opens with this. When Abram was 99 years old, (laughs) what happened the last 13 years? no big deal. It's just a sentence. The Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make you cut my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. <clears throat> By the way, you should probably pay attention to what he's saying here. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. Now let's talk about this for just a second because we're going to come back to it. Abram means exalted one. Abraham means father. What God does here is takes away the title exalted one and just makes him the father. And if you're like, nah, he's not doing it, hang with me. Uh, For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. By the way, does this feel like you're saying the same thing over and over again? Pay attention to that. Next slide. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you, the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner. I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. 
Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. (gasps) Like, couldn't we have come up with a better thing? You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you for the generations to come. Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner. Those who are not of your offspring, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. All of them. Abram has to circumcise all of them. Now, how many is that? Well, we know it's more than 318. Like, that's a lot of circumcisions. My covenant in your, in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any circum, uncircumcised male who has not been uncircumcised in the flesh will be cut off from my people. He has broken my covenant. Now, this feels like we went to the school of redundancy school. I'm gonna let that sit with you because that's funny. Right? That's what it, like there's all this repetition and and. God never wastes a word, so why, why does he keep repeating himself? Well, let's play one of our favorite games that we play here at Real Life. Have we ever seen this before? It's always in the text. Good job. You guys, I'm so proud. This smacks eerily similar to the covenant that God made with Noah. Check this out in Genesis chapter 9. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Sound familiar? And with every living creature that was with you. The birds, the livestock, and all the animals, and all those that came out of the ark with you. Every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant covenant between me and you. And that is the center of the chiasm. This whole covenant with Noah is a chiasm. The word earth, ha'aretz, is seven times. The word covenant, barit, is seven times. The word clouds, hanan, is five times. Four in the English, but five in the Hebrew, which is a whole other conversation. Like this, it's all this thing that pulls us into the center where, well, what's the point of the covenant? The point of the covenant is I will remember Which is the same thing he says to Abraham. I'm going to remember the covenant. I'm going to honor it. I'm going to. Why is that weird? Because it's not the suzerain's job to remember the covenant. It's the vassal's job to remember the covenant. And now all of a sudden you ought to be like, like mind blown. God takes the position of servant. In a covenant where he's the suzerain. (laughs) Like, you ought to be motivated about that because he just bailed you out. 
Now let's, let's read on. Let's finish Genesis 9. God also, back, go back and we got to finish. I remember my covenant between me and you, all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood and destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all the life on the earth. So the sign for Noah was a rainbow. Better deal. <laughs> Just going to lay that on the table for consideration in the conversation. Now, why circumcision? Why, why is that? Why is that the thing? Because it's not like tons of people are going to know that you're part of this covenant. I mean, if they are, you've got a whole other set of problems than that. <laughs> like, what's the deal with circumcision? Why that? Well... Here's, try this on. Circumcision in the ancient world had a couple of major purposes. One was all priests of all the gods were circumcised as a mark of their priesthood. Now, we can look at that and go, that's obvious. Like, totally, that totally makes sense why God would apply that to his covenant with Abraham. Right? The second use of circumcision in the ancient world was if a people was a conquered people, they became vassals of someone else, the suzerain would often circumcise them as a mark that they had been conquered. Which raises a fascinating conversation about why priests and vassals are connected through circumcision, but that's another conversation for another day. What is God doing with circumcision? God takes Abram, exalted, and lowers him. You're just a father. And then he says, and you're going to get marked through circumcision as a reminder to you that you are not to leverage your exalted. What is the story right before? It's Hagar and Sarai. It's all this mistreatment of power. And so God comes to him and says, Abraham... It's time for us to teach you a lesson. It's time for you to understand what it means to be my bait off. So we have circumcision and every male, servant, slave, shepherd, boy, son, doesn't matter. All of them must be circumcised. Why? Because there's a second half to this covenant. Check this out. Let's go back to Genesis 17. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. And we're like, whoa, right? You changed the I to an H. I mean, you moved it a whole position in the alphabet. Here's what he did. Sarai means my princess. Sarah means princess. And you're like, he just removed the possessive pronoun. Right. She is not your possession anymore, Abraham. She is your equal. Come on. <laughs> like God is blowing his mind right now, right? Circumcision is the great leveler. It brings the exalted low, but it brings the lowly up. 
And this covenant that God is a part of with Abraham, that is his job in the Beit Av. Now check this out. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations, kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down and he laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man 100 years old and will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And, and Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And then God said, yes, I got Ishmael. Why? Because he's part of your bait of. You have to bless him. Which raises some fascinating questions about the world we live in right now and what we do with, I don't know, people from the Middle East. But then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And for his, as for Ishmael, I've heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant will establish with Isaac whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abram took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household and circumcised them as God told him. Now, <laughs> again, a lot of circumcisions in one day. Uh, which is another topic of conversation. But I want you to think about what God's doing in this covenant. He brings the exalted low and brings the low up. What's the next story? The next story is the three strangers that are ultimately gonna be God and two angels, but Abraham doesn't know that yet. They're strangers to him, and Abram is sitting in his tent, in the entrance of his tent, in the heat of the day. Why is he sitting in the entrance of his tent? Because he just got circumcised. And he still gets up and runs to meet three people that he does not know. That's the kind of guy that God wants to use. Now he finds out God's plan. God's like, hey, I'm going to go destroy Sodom. Now, Abram just learned that his job is to bring the exalted low and to lift up those who are lowly. So for these people who don't have a bait of, what is Abraham supposed to do for them? He's supposed to fight for them. So what does he do? But God, if there was 50 righteous, would you, would you spare the city? I mean, if of course, it's his first act in this new covenant. Of course, he has to fight for them. Now, God will ultimately destroy Sodom, not for the perversion that we often um, think about, but for something really, really interesting in connection to these other stories. Ezekiel 16.49, it says this. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They did not lift up those who were low. This is at the core of what it means to be God's community. And all of a sudden, we look at what does it 
take to be the kind of guy that God wants to partner with to put the world back together, the kind of person that God wants to partner with to put the world back together? Well, it takes someone who's willing to give up status, authority, power, in order to raise up those around them. Now, qualification on that. That does not do away with authority structure. It doesn't, and what happens is a lot of times we, we go exactly Hagar on this situation where we're like, well, I've been lowly and now I'm, look, I'm liberated from the Lord and now I don't have to listen to anyone. That's rebellion. The goal of this covenant is that we understand how, like authority structures are there for our good, even when we don't like what they say but that we understand how authority is supposed to treat those under them and how those under them are supposed to love and care for authority. Like maybe we shouldn't be hashtag not my president. I, I would consider that as uh, rebellious in our covenant. I'm not saying I love everything he does but I guarantee you, you'll be better off if you pray for him than if you just stand in the position of critic. Because here's the deal. It's in all of our best interest if he does well. Would we not agree with that? You don't have to like him. You, don't have to, you, can, you can be like, you can have disdain for him and his wall or Whatever but he's still our president. And we still have an obligation before God to understand how we're supposed to support one another. This, this is the mark of Christianity. Sounds awfully Jesus-y, this whole thing that Abraham's doing. This leads us to the Lord's table. So for those of you that are passing out communion, I want you to go back and get that. If you're new with us today, we have what's called an open table. And that means that anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake in communion. But we want you to hold those elements till the end. We'll take them all together. Now, while they're passing that out, I want to work through some implications with you. Okay, implication number one. God redeems the story by taking the form of a servant and lifting up the helpless. If this is the God that we are putting on display, then this is also how we ought to live our lives. Rather than pressing and clamoring for status and position and glory and power and money, we should be laying our lives down in the service of the people around us so that they can become more. God redeems the story. Remember, the, the flow of this is God creates uh, the world and sets the thing in motion and asks us to trust what he wants to do with the world, and we don't do a good job of that. Abraham does trust, and he, God is able to use him. God is able to use him again and again and again. Next implication. Every person, every person has a role in God's covenant community. Every person has a role in God's covenant community. Now, they're not all the same role. This is the problem with something like communism where we try to do away with all authority. It doesn't work. 
Not everybody has the same role, but everybody has a role. And spiritual leadership exists to pull out of someone the best version of what God has already put in them. Not to demand or put them under your thumb. That's not spiritual leadership. Every person has a role in God's covenant community. Next implication. My call is to imitate Christ, to put God on display by lowering myself to exalt others. This is what God's doing with Abraham. Look at Philippians chapter two. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I love the way they worded that. He didn't leverage his status for his own advantage. What did he do with his God status? I'll tell you what he did. He healed lepers, set captives free. He liberated, gave sight to the blind. That's what he did with his power. He made the lesser ones more. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what our life should look like. And so the simple question for you at this point is, when was the last time you became less so that someone else could become more? Husbands, friends, coworkers, Fathers, when was the last time you became less so that the people around you could become more? And maybe there's a couple of conversations for you to have in the care groups this week. Next implication. If I am already one who has been brought low, this new liberation and exaltation does not give me license to pay back the oppressor. My job is not revenge. That's the problem with Hagar and Sarai. That's the problem in that story is that whoever's in power tries to exact revenge on the one that mistreated them. The way to stop mistreatment is to not mistreat people. Look at Romans 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. God never asks you to partner with him in revenge. He asks you to partner with him in redemption. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And we all go, what does that mean to heap burning coals on his head? What does the fire represent? Presence of God, always. And now we're all the way back to Genesis 15. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I love that quote from Abraham Lincoln, the, um, I destroy my enemy by making them my friend, yes. right? Like, that's not always possible. 
I get it. Some people leave, they, they brighten a room by leaving it. Some people do. And no matter what you do or say or try, it doesn't matter. They are not going to receive it. I get that. But in as much as it depends on you, you be the kind of person that unleashes the power of God in people's lives by the way you treat them. Which is exactly what that video was about. Like no theological degrees, no great sermons preached and yet deeply impacted by the love of God. Last implication. I do not humble myself to make myself less, but to make others more. And this is so important. Because what a lot of people do is they like, I want to be humble, and so I don't want to ever say anything good about myself, or uh, I want to be self-deprecating. I'm going to be self-deprecating. So they make, like, oh, I'm terrible. I'm worthless. I'm awful. I, I can't do anything right. I'm just, you know, just me being an idiot again. Look at me. I'm always an idiot. <laughs> I can't do any of this stuff. <laughs> right? Which, first of all, is like, number one, I don't like being around you <laughs> when you say Because uh, it's like, that's not true. And, and what happens is you start fishing for compliments when you're doing that. Like, you're not, you're, you're like, that's not humility. That's false pride. I mean, it's false humility. It's prideful. Right? Humility doesn't deny what I am. Humility uses what I am to make someone else better. Not to build my own world. And that's the difference. I don't become humble to make myself less. I become humble so that the people around me can become more. This is why Jesus humbled himself and took on the very form of a vassal. So that you and I could become more. And it's why I love taking communion every week because it leads us to this reality of Jesus' reminder to lay your life down. This is the way we put the world back together. It reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And so Lord, I just want to say thank you for your amazing grace for the fact that you walk both sides of the covenant for us. Thank you, God, that you uh, see who we are and you invite us to something more, not just for ourselves, but for everyone around us. Lord, help us as we represent you and our community to be the kind of people who, uh, in the name of, of God, make other people better. Lord, we love you and we trust you. So we're going to follow you wherever you take us in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, liferotp.com.